56th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends know me by my initials, JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative, inclusive ways. Today, we are joined by Aubrey de Grey. Before I even get into introducing Aubrey, I wanted to remind all of you who have joined us on Zoom, on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, uh, please use the comment section to type in your questions, keep them short if you would, and we will get to as many of them as we can. Uh, Aubrey de Grey is the Chief Science Officer and co-founder of SENS Research Foundation, an organization dedicated to changing the way we approach age-related diseases by researching, developing, and promoting the means to defeat the human aging process. A biomedical gerontologist, he co-authored Ending Aging, the Rejuvenation Breakthroughs, that could reverse human aging in our lifetimes. I've been listening and re-listening to it on Audible and I highly recommend it. Aubrey, welcome again. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, let's start out for the uninitiated. Uh, you were the first to deploy the terminology of strategies for engineering negligible senescence or sense. Um, how did you come up with that terminology? I, I do notice very much you use a lot of uh, engineering and mechanical analogies in writing about uh, the aging process. Um, and, and how does the SENS approach differ in its either its goals or its focus from other areas of longevity research? Well, the SENS paradigm has actually become pretty mainstream by now. But back then, when I started thinking in these terms and uh, coining this term, um, yes, you're quite right, it was a bit of a departure. So um, the term itself, well, of course, the acronym is just, you know, designed to be catchy. Um, but the um, words in the acronym are not entirely random. So um, initially, I um, started from the fact that the term negligible senescence, per se, was already established within the field. It had been established for at least a decade as a way of describing species that do not appear to age, at least if you look at them in terms of demographics, in terms of the distribution of ages in the population, rather than trying to measure their health. Um, there are discuss them in the scientific research world. The word negligible senescence, as opposed to non-senescence, was um, given in order to emphasize the fact that you can never really know whether there's a teeny tiny little bit of aging going on. You can only measure what you can from a finite sized population, so it's limited by statistical significance. But still, um, this was an established term. So what I wanted to do was to engineer that, in other words, to turn a species that does not exhibit negligible senescence, in other words, does exhibit aging, namely humans, um, into a species that does not. Uh, so that's engineered negligible senescence. And so, you know, strategies was kind of the obvious word to begin the acronym with. 
so how does it depart from prior work? Well, essentially, the main thing that I introduced was to show that it was plausible to actually turn back the clock of aging rather than just to slow it down. This, in fact, I went more than I said more than that. I went much further and said that it's actually going to be a very great deal easier to turn the clock back than to slow it down, which is very counterintuitive. So you know, it was a paradigm shift. And um, essentially, what this means is that even though we will not necessarily be able to, um, you know, turn the clock back really comprehensively in the foreseeable future we can get away with doing it step by step. Once we get fairly good at turning the clock back, we're kind of buying ourselves time to get better at turning the clock back and so on. And that is what gives us the possibility to engineer truly negligible senescence. In other words, to allow people to live without suffering any of the health problems of late life. Interesting. Yeah, I know one of the analogies that you had used in the book was uh, jumping off a cliff with a jetpack, you know, that you are hurtling towards your death and it's getting closer and closer. At some point, you, you turn on the jetpack, you start to slow the approach to the bottom of the cliff, then you hover, then you start to go up, and then actually as you rise, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're going faster and faster. And we're going to get into some of the the scientific processes that, that would start to make that acceleration possible. Um, but first, I'd like to start with a little bit about you. So you are speaking to us uh, from your home in, uh, in Santa Cruz, sort of border Santa Cruz, uh, Silicon Valley. Your lab is in Mountain View, uh, but you are you did not grow up here. So I'd love to, to learn a little bit about where you grew up and also, you know, such an interesting area of specialization. Uh, was there childhood experiences or a mentor or something that, that drove you down this path? Yeah, so it was a fairly um, winding road, actually, certainly not a direct path to where I am now. So as you say, yes, I grew up elsewhere in that far off place called the rest of the world where there are very few followers of Ayn Rand. Um, and um, yes, in London specifically. And I spent half my life in Cambridge, about one hour north of London. Uh, that's where I did my degrees. And uh, yeah, I was originally not a biologist. I started out as a computer scientist, in fact, because I established quite early on in my life that I was a pretty good programmer. And um, I thought, well, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work on a bad problem for humanity that needs good programmers to solve it. And the bad problem in question was simply the problem of work, the fact that people have to spend their lives, so much of their lives doing stuff that they wouldn't do unless they were being paid for it. Um, so I thought, let's fix that with better automation. So I wanted to go into artificial intelligence research, and that's what I did. I did my undergrad degree in computer science, and I spent six or seven years doing um, AI research. And I was doing fine. You know, it was like, it was, I was definitely succeeding. I, you know, I rewrote a textbook or two, and um, that was great. But then, um, you know, just by accident, I ended up meeting and marrying a biologist in the middle of all of that. And um, the result was not only did I accidentally learn a lot of biology over the dinner table, but also I, um, I ended up realizing and finding out this 
utter bombshell, which was that biologists were not interested in aging. You know, I mean, what? You know, it's crazy because it was always completely obvious to me since I was a young child that aging was by far head and shoulders the, um, the most important, the most severe problem facing humanity. And the only reason I could go into it myself was that I had no reason to believe that I would be particularly exceptional as a biologist. And that's why I went into, into a different problem instead. But having discovered that actually the biologists were not working on it, because it wasn't just my ex-wife as she is now, um, uh, you know, I thought, well, okay, I better switch fields, really. Uh, plus, by that time, I had understood that people who understand how to work on really hard problems in one field and then they switch fields, they tend to have a pretty good track record. Um, you know, they tend to you know, be able to make big breakthroughs because they are not encumbered by the conventional wisdom of the people who've been in the other field in their, all their careers. Famous example, of course, is molecular biology, which was basically entirely invented in the 1950s by a bunch of physicists. Uh, so yeah, I mean, so, so I did. that's how I got here. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about somebody coming from outside uh, the field and bringing a, a fresh perspective. Uh, Richard Branson, of course, founder of all of the Virgin Industries, I may be apocryphal, but he was asked once, why do you call these, use the, the term virgin? And it wasn't necessarily for sort of salacious uh, reasons, but he was saying that from a management point of view, he liked to bring in people uh, who were virgins to the field or to the industry. And I, I remember that had influenced me when I was hired by David Murdoch to start a nutrition institute. And I said, you know, I'm not a nutritionist. This is not my field. And he said, no, precisely. I, I think you're going to bring a, a different perspective because the nutritionists who've been working on this um, may have something to do with the result, which we have, which is you know, rampant obesity. So, yeah. um, so how much though of, uh, you're, you're an engineer as a programmer is uh, influencing your approach in, in describing aging as a, as a function of physics more than uh, a function of biology or do you actually think those metaphors given the actual processes that are taking place are more apt? Well, the metaphors, uh, I mean, I wouldn't be using them if I didn't think they were apps, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the um, background that I had in engineering has certainly helped me to come up with the right metaphors, uh, both in terms of advocacy, in terms of how I describe things, and also in terms of how I think about things. Um, so in my early days, when I was learning, you know, I was getting into the field, um, obviously, you know, I started out just learning what was already known and applying my own way of thinking to what was already known in order to come up with innovations and potential new avenues for intervention. And yes, absolutely, for sure, it made an enormous difference that I came from an engineering discipline. And I was thinking about things in a different way. I was thinking about the human body as a machine, albeit a ridiculously complicated machine and one that we very poorly understand, but nevertheless a machine and therefore something whose function is ultimately determined by its structure. And that's really all you need to come up with the damage repair paradigm, because, um, which is what science is. Because at the end of the day, you know, um, if a, a machine structure determines its function, then you can restore its function and maintain its function by restoring its structure to how it was when it was built or, you know, not long afterwards. 
And that's exactly what we already perfectly happily successfully do with simple man-made machines like cars or whatever. So the logic is simply we need to do the same thing for the human body. And the only thing that one needs to add to that concept in order to make it interesting and useful is to characterize what damage you need to repair. You know, what changes the body does to itself as, you know, it, that inflicts on itself throughout life in the, uh, in the course of its normal operation that eventually becomes too abundant for the body to tolerate and therefore causes the pathologies of late life. And of course that turned out to be relatively easy to do. I was able to propose this classification of just seven different types of damage that the body accumulates and the corresponding promising ways to repair those various types of damage. And the probably the single strongest argument that this is the right way to be going is that nothing has happened. In other words, that this, um, this, this classification has stood the test of 20 years and nobody's come up with new types of damage that don't fit into the classification and that require new and uh, different types of repair concept to address. Without getting into too much detail, uh, maybe addressing some of those seven areas uh, and also where you see where you're most optimistic about, if you were to prioritize where we are closest in terms of finding ways to, uh, to have a breakthrough for reversing or maintaining um, the human life. Sure. So, well, let me answer those, those two points in reverse order. The um, question about prioritization is very easy to answer if we talk about the whole research community, uh, because we can simply say there cannot be a prioritization because this is a divide and conquer strategy. Any one of these types of damage can perfectly happily kill you on its own, uh, you, know, um, you know, more or less on schedule, uh, however well we fix all the others. So we can't prioritize, we have to get reasonably good at fixing all of them. In terms of my organization, Science Research Foundation, I can give a rather different answer though, because of course we work within the ecosystem and our goal is to counterbalance any biases that may arise elsewhere in the ecosystem. And of course those, those biases do arise because most people, most people who are working here have short-termism restraints of one kind or another. Either it's their shareholders are worried about their quarterly balance sheets or in the academic sector, it's like they've got to get papers out in order to get the next grant application funded. You know, one way or another, there are things that get neglected, not because they're not important, not even because they're not understood to be important, but rather because the constraints of the system get in the way. So we as an independent uh, nonprofit, uh, you know, I set, I set this up specifically with this in mind, to be able to do to work on the things that other people are forced to neglect. And that's still the case. We work on the most difficult, most challenging areas of this damage repair portfolio, because those are the ones that need to catch up. Um, going to the first part of your question, you know, give me, can you give an example? Sure. Um, well, let's just start with the simplest and easiest to explain example, which is loss of cells. So that simply means in a given tissue, cells die, now, in most tissues, the cells are replaced by the division of other cells. Fine. But in some tissues, that replacement doesn't happen, which means, of course, that the total number of cells in the relevant tissue progressively declines. And eventually, there are too few cells for the tissue to do its job. 
there are various aspects of ageing that are undoubtedly driven by that kind of process. Um, so Parkinson's disease is a fine example. There's a particular type of neuron in a particular part of the brain um, that dies a lot more rapidly than most neurons do. And, um, you know, that's why we get Parkinson's. Uh, and so if you can fix that, then that's great. So what does fixing that mean? Obviously, it means restoring cell number. So that means putting cells in that the body is not putting in on its own by cell division. And we do that with stem cell therapy. Sure enough, that's, you know, that's a well-accepted um, principle. And indeed, stem cell therapies were first attempted 30 or so years ago for Parkinson's disease. Back then, they were very, very rarely successful. They were occasionally successful, but it was really hit and miss because we didn't know anything about how to manipulate stem cells before we inject them into the body. Um, but even then, it was occasionally successful, and when it was, it was spectacularly successful. So um, now that we know so much more about how to manipulate stem cells in the laboratory and inject the right kind of stem cell, everyone's really, really excited. And there are clinical trials, new ones already going on, quite a few more just about to start up. So, yeah, this is the kind of example of what we want to do. All right, I want to remind all of you that are following us on the various uh, social media platforms to take this opportunity, go ahead, get in the queue, ask a question of Aubrey de Grey. I know a lot of the people who follow the Atlas Society are uh, primarily interested in philosophy. And of course, in philosophy, we embrace a, in objectivism, we embrace a metaphysics of reality and, and an epistemology of reason, and, and therefore we, we prize the, the scientific method. Um, and also in, in reading your book, you, you talk about the various obstacles that need to be overcome to advance uh, the SEMS agenda. Some of them are financial, some of them are political, but, uh, but one of them is, is really almost uh, philosophical, it's uh, cultural. You, you talk about the uh, irrational um, pro-aging trance and um, perhaps you could explain what you mean by that and why it, it's uh, something that needs to be overcome. Sure, and let me start by stressing that I do not consider it to be irrational. I actually think it's totally rational, it's just, it's outdated. So what is it? It is simply the, um, the process of coming up with excuses for ageing, with arguments that ageing is some kind of blessing in disguise, and that if we were able to eliminate it, we would regret it, because there would be other problems that would arise, would be so absolutely terrible that, um, you know, that would be even worse than the problem of ageing. Now, why do I say that that is not irrational? Well, I don't. As I say, I think it's outdated, which means I say that it was not irrational. In fact, I used to call it rational denial. Um, the reason for that is because until I came along, basically, um, we didn't have the faintest idea how to go about doing anything about ageing. And therefore, we were living the same as we have since the beginning of civilization in this situation where there's this ghastly thing that's going to happen to us in the future. For most of us, the rather distant future. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. So uh, what do we do? You know, I mean, are we going to spend our lives preoccupied by this terrible thing that's going to happen? Or are we going to put it out of our minds? Clearly, the right thing to do, the rational thing to do is to put it out of our minds. So then the question is how? And of course, the thing is, um, that's not a question about 
real life, about the outside world, about reality and physics and stuff, it's a question about psychology, right? Basically, what it means is that if we think of an argument that works, that if we succeed in tricking ourselves into believing something that's clearly not true, namely that aging actually is a blessing in disguise, then that's great. You know, we have succeeded in, you know, getting on with our miserably short lives. Um, and that's great. And that was fine right until I came along, because now we're in a very different situation where we are seen to be within striking distance of bringing aging under proper medical control and actually escaping this thing. And therefore, we're in a situation in which the amount of attention that we pay to that challenge and the amount of effort we put into it determines how soon we will succeed. It determines how many lives are going to be saved, right? So now it's totally irrational, but it's irrational for new reasons. So, you know, I have total sympathy with the fact that the general public are hard to persuade on this matter because, you know, we've had millennia to be brainwashed into it and it used to make sense. Got it. All right. I still have a lot of questions for Aubrey, but uh, we have a few that are coming in from uh, our various audiences. So I'm going to start mixing those in. Uh, Chris McCauley on uh, Zoom asks, uh, Aubrey, you previously stated that longevity escape velocity would be achieved by damage repair that, and that damage can be split broadly into two different types, easy and hard, to, and hard damage. Uh, would the hard damage that emerges um, after having repaired the easy damage be unrecognizable to us? And would that require completely new classifications and types of repair therapies? Yeah, fantastic question. So in order to answer, before I answer it, I should give a little background because of course, Chris is demonstrating that he understands quite a lot of things I haven't yet spoken about. Um, so longevity escape velocity is a concept and a word and a phrase that I introduced nearly 20 years ago now, um, essentially to describe the consequences in the long term of success in rejuvenation biotechnology, in repairing the damage of aging. Essentially, I recognized from the beginning that there are many, many different types of damage. I've described those seven different classes, but within each class, there are many other, many subtypes. The only reason the classification is useful is because it translates into generic therapies. So every, every type of cell loss is fixed by stem cell therapy, but, but there are many different cell losses, right? And so you get the idea. Okay, so many different things to do. Some of them are gonna be harder than others. No, no surprise there. But it's going to be kind of additive. There's a lot of crosstalk between these things. So we can certainly, in fact, we can almost certainly guarantee a um, scenario that will come along initially. And when I say initially, I mean, I don't know how soon, but I would say 50-50 chance of talking about, about maybe 15 years from now. Um, initially, where we are able to postpone the health problems of late life by a couple of decades, 20 or 30 years. Okay, so that is by no means, you know, indefinite longevity, but it's, you know, it's definitely a great deal better than nothing, no question, but it's not indefinite. And, you know, I think it's important to recognize what will happen then when these therapies are available. People are not going to be satisfied. People are definitely going to want the next 30 years and the ones after that, right? So there's going to be a lot of incentive for the world, for the researchers around the world to continue working to get better at this. So when Chris here in the question talks about easy damage and hard damage, that's just kind of 
definitional. All I'm saying is easy damage is defined as the damage that we can fix with the first generation rejuvenation therapies and hard damage is the stuff that we can't. All right. So, yeah, the idea is that once we've fixed the easy damage, we've got a few decades to figure out what to do next. The same people who benefited from the easy damage will also potentially be able to benefit from re-rejuvenation 20 or 30 years later, but only if we can also fix some of the hard damage. Because if we can still only fix the easy damage, then, you know, they're already getting those therapies, they're not going to benefit any further. Um, right, so the question Chris asks is, are the difficult types of damage likely to be radically different? Are they going to be different categories that are outside my seven point plan. And of course, we don't know, we absolutely cannot say for sure. But at this point, I would say that's quite unlikely. I would say that we are actually almost certainly going to be seeing simply additional subtypes of the easy day of, of the seven categories that we already have, that are more difficult for whatever reason to repair than the first ones, but still they're within the same categories, which means they are amenable to variations on the same themes in terms of repair. Now, that may not be true. So I certainly believe that during this period, we will absolutely want to very greatly ramp up our research in aging in other organisms, especially in non-human primates, to um, you know, to get a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, you know, if you've got a monkey that normally ages twice as fast as a human, right, and you, uh, you give it the same therapies that the human's getting, then the monkey's going to live longer as well. But the difficult damage that the monkey uh, um, experiences will start to matter to the monkey a long time in advance. See what I mean? Right? So, um, mm -hmm. so I expect that that's going to be a large part of how we anticipate by a sufficient amount of time, uh, it is radically different. Great. Well, I can see from Chris's question and from others, we've got a mix in here of people who are quite familiar with your work and then others who are newcomers to it. So I'm going to take it back to uh, more of a maybe beginner question, but one that's practical and relevant and topical for us now uh, when we look back on our experience with COVID. Uh, the mortality and the severe consequences are uh, really concentrated among the elderly. You, you look at these mortality graphs and it's, it's almost like a hockey stick type um, uh, effect that it, it rises dramatically after uh, 65 or, or so. Um, why is that? You know, what, what, what is it about the aging process that, that makes us more vulnerable to um, to an infection like COVID? Well, basically because, uh, basically it's just because the resistance to infections that we exhibit early in life, during early adulthood, for example, now that is just part of being a human being. It's just part of being a living organism. We're constantly fighting off infections. So you have to have an immune system in order for that to happen. And absolutely everything that going and vigorous and youthful early in adulthood goes wrong during late life. It's bound to go wrong because first of all, there are so many systems, so many different types of damage accumulating and also because of the crosstalk, the fact that when one type of damage accumulates in one organ, then, you know, it kind of is less able to 
um, synergize and cooperate mm -hmm. with the rest of the body. So it's all, you know, there's all collateral damage from everything. Got it. Okay, another uh, kind of introductory question from Bill McLaughlin. He says uh, he's new to Aubrey's research, so pardon his ignorance. Bill, that's okay. Aubrey is new to Ayn Rand, so we're, we're all beginners here in one fashion or another, learning from each other. Um, he asks, does your research cover uh, tele telomerases? Telomerases. Tel yeah. Telomerases. That's how, how much of a beginner we are here. <laughs> So, absolutely. So um, for those of you who are not biologists at all, there is a special word telomere, which describes the ends of our chromosomes. And telomeres are very important because they protect the end of the chromosome in um, you know, the sequence. The sequence of DNA back there is not something with information content. It doesn't, they don't, there are no genes in the end of the chromosomes. But what it does have is a structural uh, function which is essentially to allow the cell to understand not to, for example, join two chromosomes together end to end as if it was a broken chromosome, things like that. The um, telomere is a really important thing. And it turns out that when a cell divides and therefore the chromosomes are replicated, copied, um, the ends of the chromosomes are not actually copied fully. So the chromosomes get shorter. And we have this enzyme called telomerase, which compensates for that. It's, it puts this, as I say, information-free, but nevertheless important sequence back. Um, now, this means that different cells need telomerase in different ways. Most cells don't need telomerase at all because they don't divide, or they don't divide very often. And you know, the number of times that they can divide and, and you know, accumulate this shortening of the end of the chromosome is still, you know, within the bounds of what's tolerable. But some cells, especially the stem cells of our rapidly renewing tissues, and certainly in the germline, that means our sperm and our eggs, these cells absolutely do need to express a little bit of this enzyme so as to make sure that in the long run, telomere length does not, does not diminish. Here's the problem, cancer. That's the problem. Cancer is, of course, a disease more or less defined as, you know, cell division going, um, running amok, right? And it just can't happen when telomeres are getting shorter. If you have a cell in the body that undergoes a bunch of mutations that make it divide uncontrollably, it won't kill you. It won't get more than a millimetre or three across before it just kind of implodes, you know, in terms of the number of cells there, unless and until one of those cells turns on an ability to maintain its telomeres, uh, which is almost always telomerase. And uh, when it does, then you're screwed. The cancer can go indefinitely because it can maintain its telomeres. So, uh, yes, we are very interested in this. Um, and so is the whole of aging, for that matter, because the fact, the whole of the research community, because the fact is, to a fair approximation, Aging can be described as a trade-off between, on the one hand, cancer, and on the other hand, everything else. In other words, everything that are basically side effects of what the body is having to do not to get cancer before we reproduce, right? Um, so, yeah, we absolutely need to try to find the best of both worlds here. We need to find a way to really control cancer properly, and at the same time, uh, allow telomeres to main be maintained and regenerate. If we could do either one of those things, then we could also do the other. But they're both easier said than done. 
Uh, so we are, you know, working very hard on ways to do that, on ways to control cancer using enforced telomere shortening, if you like, um, while allowing at the same time other cells to um, to maintain telomere length when they need to. Great. Um, so in your book, you talk a lot about stem cells. Uh, of course, they're one of the most promising areas of potential scientific breakthroughs in preventing and reversing aging. But it seems that when it comes to embryonic stem cells, uh, support for research gets mired in the politics of abortion. Uh, and you said there's a lot of confusion and, and some of that uh, that opposition is is misguided. C could you give us your perspective on that? Sure, sure, sure. So back 20 odd years ago, when this was a really big deal politically, there was a lot of input from scientists saying, listen, you've got this wrong because it doesn't make biological sense to view an embryo as being an actual person at when it's such an early embryo as we're talking about five days after conception. And there are various arguments to do with, for example, until at least 10 days after conception, an embryo can split in two and become two different, um, you know, obviously identical twins. And in fact, even the opposite can happen. You can have a case where you have fraternal twins, which come from, the diff from different fertilization events, that can actually fuse together and you get a chimeric person. And that can also happen after five days. So, you know, these are pretty strong arguments, but they're not strong enough to have quelled the political furor around that whole thing. Luckily, we're in a much better place now because of what happened 15 years ago in Japan, which was the development of a new way to create cells that are more or less identical to these embryonic stem cells. They're called induced pluripotent stem cells. And they're not absolutely totally 100% identical to ES cells, but they're very, very close. So the thing is, you can make these cells without destroying embryos. You make them starting from regular cells taken from an adult, and you kind of wind their developmental clock backwards, and you turn them into cells that have very, very close similarity to embryonic stem cells. So we just don't need to worry about this anymore. Technology has sidestepped the ethics. We love it. Um, well, I mean, we don't love sidestepping the ethics, but we love when uh, exponential scientific innovation uh, makes some of these trade-offs um, irrelevant because, you know, there always are trade-offs in life. And, and yeah, but, but perhaps I shouldn't have used the word sidesteps. Perhaps I should have just said, like, obviates. Well, but, you know, you, that, that brings up another question. What, what are some of the ethical qualms, concerns, objections uh, that are frequently raised to your work? Everything from sort of a Malthusian overpopulation or religious, this is God's plan. So I like to distinguish between what I feel are legitimately termed ethical concerns versus what I would prefer to call sociological concerns. So, for example, if we take the most common sociological concern, um, it is, oh dear, where will we put all the people? That's the Malthusian thing you just spoke about. Now, you know, it's easy to answer this question. All we need to point out is that the overpopulation we see today in the form of climate change, for example, is not in the form of not having enough space. 
It's in the form of generating too much pollution per person. And we're already fixing that, hello, you know, with other technologies, with renewable energy and artificial meat and, you know, um, desalination and uh, bacteria that eat plastics and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, there's no way in the world that this can really be a problem going forward. Whether or not we eliminate aging, if we look at the trajectory of global population, you know, obviously, yes, it will be it will go up faster if we don't have aging than if we do, but it will no way go up anywhere near as fast as the carrying capacity of the planet will, just by virtue of the reduction in pollution that's arising. And let's also remember that this reduction in pollution is not happening as a result of the world waking up and saying, oh dear, pollution's quite bad. Um, you know, we're still ridiculously complacent about it. What's happening instead is that people just like to have lower electricity bills and, you know, meat that's cheaper and tastier. You know, that's all it is. And that's fine with me. Um, so yeah, those are the sociological concerns, things like that. Or, you know, will there be inequality of access or, um, you know, won't dictators live forever? I mean, these are, you know, hello, I mean, I, 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 I mean, of course, these things do frustrate me quite a lot because they are so easy to rebut. And I've been rebutting them on stage and on camera every bloody day for 15 years. You know, I mean, I can't remember when it was the first time I pointed out that dictator is fairly high on the league table of risky jobs. And, you know, most dictators don't tend to die of aging in the first place. And even the ones that do tend to have worked out their succession beforehand. So, you know, it's as if they were immortal already. Um, I mean, goodness me, it's so bleeding obvious. Uh, but um, then there are, of course, the genuinely philosophical objections. People who say things like, oh dear, you know, death gives meaning to life. You know, for things like that, I feel like, I mean, it's just kind of unanswerable by design. You know, it's it's not something that a scientist or any anyone with any logic can actually start from because it's unfalsifiable you know it's just a it's just a it's just got there's no semantic content in such a statement for me so yeah i don't think much of this as you can tell <laughs> all right well we've got another couple of questions i'm i'm tempted to combine them um because i see a question here from werner uh, walther who is voicing a question that i think probably a lot of uh, our our viewers might have He's someone who is in his 70s, he's healthy, uh, his parents died in their 90s. But really the question is, you know, at what point does it become too, too late uh, to take advantage of these, these, these breakthroughs? Um, you, when you wrote the book, you talked about a certain time frame. you talked about sort of uh, potentials, the chances uh, of, of a 50-50 being able to, uh, to to stop the aging process. And another question where we might wanna think about combining it or at least lead towards is uh, Robin Mockett, who was uh, asking a question for Aubrey about research into cryonics as a way to buy time for those who will uh, die naturally before the extension mechanisms come online. Well, so, I mean, um, really, these questions should indeed be addressed simultaneously. Uh, so, Werner, I see you've written in the chat that your parents lived uh, to their late 90s. So, of course, 
we do know that longevity is somewhat heritable and therefore you've got a better chance even based on that without knowing anything else about you than the average 73 year old um nevertheless you know 73 is getting on and you know, you know i think that we have a 50 50 chance of having these technologies available within 15 years you'll be you know pushing 90 by then um so i you know i wouldn't want to get your hopes up but at the same time you know you seem to be doing everything right it seems to be working for you right now you know i'm 58 and i am not sure whether i'm going to make it i am um, you know i'm doing my best i'm also doing very well for my age but who could say at the end of the day I, for me you know the thing that i focus on is not myself or even my loved ones my focus is humanity in general i know that the difference that I make by working in this field rather than working in some other field or spending my life on the beach is only a few years, if at most, in terms of how soon we will actually, um, you know, defeat aging, bring, uh, achieve longevity, escape velocity. And that makes only a few percent difference at most to any, indiv any given individual's chance of making the cut. But if we think about humanity in general, it's a very different deal. You know, it's 110,000 people that we save for every single day that we bring forward the defeat of aging. You know, I mean, that's very easy to get out of bed for, for me. You know, I think that's the, that's the right way to think about it. But coming back to Robin's question, hello, Robin. I, of course, have known Robin a very long time. Um, Great. Well, welcome, Robin. Thanks for joining us. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that as society as humanity begins to wake up to the fact that this really is coming and coming quite soon probably there will be an enormous rush towards cryonics towards the practice of um of being frozen immediately after one has been pronounced legally dead on the basis that improvements in medicine hereafter will allow such people to be warmed up and revived and of course the stuff that they were legally uh, pronounced to have died from can be repaired we have seen revisions of the definition of clinical death over the years resulting precisely from improvements in medical practice that have allowed people who we thought we were beyond the uh, were beyond um, hope uh, to be brought back and it became a bit embarrassing really having all these people walking around with no real side effects who had been officially dead um yeah so that's definitely happening and a large huge part of this is the fact that there are enormously promising research areas within cryonics that are able potentially to virtually eliminate the damage that is done to the body by the cryopreservation process itself which of course is on top of the damage that killed the person uh, killed where killed is in scare quotes of course um so yes we this is a hugely important area and i believe that within the next few years we will be absolutely seeing an enormous headlong rush towards cryonics and that this headlong rush will largely arise from the fact that within the next few years we're going to this huge progress in reducing the amount of damage done by the cryopreservation process and therefore increasing very greatly the likelihood that people can in the future be revived. Great. Um, another question here from Diego Endo. 
Uh, he asks, is ethnicity a differential variable in the general rejuvenation therapies? Short answer, no. I mean, of course, one can only answer this, um, you know, definitively by looking at large populations that, you know, that statistics, but, you know, to, to, uh, to all intents and purposes, absolutely no. That's lovely because I'm so tired of thinking of ethnicity <laughs> as a lens for absolutely everything. So uh, good to know that generally we can... let, let, let me actually give a slight elaboration. So one reason why one might think that what I just said is not correct is Japan, where of course we do see, you know, people living longer than they do in the West. But we have to remember that it's quite hard to distinguish ethnicity here from other aspects of diet and lifestyle and so on. We know, for example, that the US, you know, the rest of the world, we laugh at you because um, because you guys, you know, you spend, I say you guys, I'm a US citizen now, so I can't really say this anymore, but um, you, um, you know, you spend far more per person on medical care than any other country in the world. And yet, if you look at the league table of life expectancy, you're down in you know, around 45 or something. It's embarrassing. It's totally embarrassing. But of course, if you look at the absolute numbers, that's not really, you know, it's not really fair because the difference in life expectancy in years between the US and Japan is only about five years. You know, it's not enormous. Great. Uh, we have another 10, maybe 12 minutes uh, with Aubrey. So please ask your questions. This is a really wonderful opportunity and, and we're so very grateful. I highly recommend uh, that you check out his book, Ending Aging and uh, having read it my, myself, uh, have things advanced much uh, as much as you'd hoped since the 2008 publication of your book? Um, well, what has surprised I mean, you? What, what has maybe fallen short? Well, you know, hope is a very personal thing. I'm very much a glass half full kind of guy. You know, I'm, I, I, I focus very strongly on have come a long way. And certainly, especially on the fact that we are moving really fast now, far faster than we were before. However, you know, equally, I always temper that with the realization, the acknowledgement that we could have gone faster in the past, we could be going faster now, if society just woke the hell up and uh, started to really understand that this is the number one problem from humanity of humanity. Um, nevertheless, you know, I can't complain. All right. Um, in your book, you talk about the power of competition to spur innovation. And uh, you and I were talking right before we went live about Peter Diamandis, who's uh, Draw My Life. My name is Peter Diamandis. We, we recently released, I think, in the past two weeks, it's been viewed over 700,000 times. Um, and he was uh, and has been very inspired by the power of competition, the spirit of St. Louis to, uh, to spur innovations in areas where he just kind of grew impatient with the pace of bureaucracy and, and government to, to get things done, didn't want to wait around for it. So, um, how has that influenced your thinking? I know that you have been involved in, in various prizes, the, the Mouse Prize, the M Prize, uh, 
how, uh, how could they be leveraged in, in the future? And if you can let us know about anything you might be working on now, otherwise we just have to stay yeah, tuned. Sure. So, so, of course, incentives are part of life. You know, they are a fact of life. We've got to actually give people reasons to, do, to work on what we want them to work on that are reasons that they find persuasive. And we can't define what that is. So, you know, we at Sense Research Foundation, we're a non-profit. We're a 501c3 public charity. And for that reason, we get a bunch of people giving us money because they want tax benefits. But we also have a bunch of people not giving us money because they think charities are fundamentally inefficient and useless. And, um, you know, a lot of people uh, think that way. Um, you know, I can probably speak to Larry Page. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, has a few has a few dollars to spend. And he decided to put a lot of those dollars into the crusade against aging in the form of this company called Calico. Now, calling it a company is a bit of a joke because it has all the money it's ever going to need and it might in principle create products in the end. But as far as I can tell, it's being run more or less like a nonprofit internally, except that because it's a company, it doesn't tell anybody what it's actually doing. Though, of course, I have my spies, so I have a fair idea. Um, um, but also, you know, it's been set up really badly. So, so badly that it's extraordinarily unlikely that Calico will ever actually make a significant contribution to the defeat of aging. It's a tragedy. It's an absolute scandal. And that's despite the fact that Larry Page met me when he, in 2005, I think, you know, he's been perfectly well aware of the real, you know, where, where to actually go to get actual information about what to work on. Um, but he's never given us a penny. You know, you can't legislate against that. People are just going to make their own decisions that way. Um, so prizes are a kind of left field, you know, um, uh, end run around this in the sense that they provide incentive structures without necessarily deciding, you know, how to be, how, how it's going to be done. So the XPRIZE Foundation, Peter D. Madison's organization, is a 501c3, it's a charity, right? Um, but yet it's made enormous differences in a load of different fields, starting obviously with space tourism. Um, and there is very likely to be a longevity XPRIZE very soon. Um, obviously we're working on it. There's a fair amount already public about it. I've been closely involved in the design of the prize over the past couple of years now. Um, you know, it takes a while to get these things right. We've been talking, Peter and myself, about maybe doing an XPRIZE for longevity for at least 15 years. Um, but it was, no, the time wasn't right, the science wasn't there. You have, to, you have to hit this sweet spot between ambition and achievability, right? And um, so now's the time. So it's going to happen. Any ballparks on the size of the prize? Yes, but I probably shouldn't say. Okay, well, we shall definitely uh, stay stay tuned because that's another, you know, these are not negligible prizes. So the Elon Musk Carbon Capture Prize that was recently announced and uh, that's one of the, I, I think, interesting parts of the story that we tell in Peter Diamandis' Draw My Life. He, went up there and he announced his $10 million uh, X prize for uh, the space flight, but he didn't have the money yet. And of course, Anusha Ansari, who came to the gala and who the prize is now answered, named after, uh, answered his call. And so 
Uh, and let me actually speak to that a little bit, because that really showed you the kind of person Peter is. That is really, you know, the kind of person that I, you know, my, my role model, really. Someone who's willing to put everything down, you know, lay everything on the line. Um, but also, let me emphasize the, the way he got the money in the end. He got it because of how edgy the goal was. It was eventually secured with a one-shot insurance policy. In other words, you know, basically an insurance company underwrote it because they thought it was so unlikely to be um, actually achieved. Now, where did the insurance company get their information? Obviously, they got it from the mainstream community. Right from, you know, executives at Lockheed Martin or Boeing or whatever, or NASA. And they all said, we're not even going to compete because this is a fucking joke. You know, excuse my French. And, um, you know, and that's how he got his money. You know, if it hadn't been for their skepticism, we wouldn't be here. So, um, you know, edginess really pays off. And reading Atlas Shrugged really pays off and uh, getting inspiration from that. So I am going to uh, keep on you because I'm very curious to see how you might find the novel given that so many people in your circle have, have found it really transformative. And um, that, that, will be, that will be interesting to see. Totally. So uh, what, what's next for you, uh, Aubrey? What, what are your priorities now? I know talking before you said you did absolutely not have a, a bit of a break uh, during, during lockdowns. So um, what is, is going on for you? What are your, your plans, your shorter term plans? Yeah, so, I mean, because I've just been, you know, around a long time and I've, you know, been able to be fairly prominent as, in both the science and the advocacy of this crusade, um, you know, I have a big network. And as the industry grows, especially the industry per se, in other words, the private sector component of the ecosystem, I end up being the go-to person in terms of just networking, you know. I spend a lot of my life just making introductions. So I guess my answer to your question is I deliberately don't have a priority. I deliberately do everything all at the same time, and that's largely why I don't get enough sleep. You know, I have an inbox that is the size of Canada every morning and, um, you know, almost everything. Well, most of what I have to do is easy to do. It's just that there are so many items there. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I basically want to carry on doing that. I want to carry on helping other people to do what they can do because, you know, most of the stuff that I feel I needed to do on my own, I've already done. We're now at the stage where the things I can do, I can best do as um, a facilitator of other people. Wonderful. Well, given your Canadian-sized mailbox and all of the many demands on your time and the sleeplessness, um, we are all the more grateful that you took time out of your schedule to, to be with us today and uh, let us learn a little bit more about SENS and about your uh, extraordinarily encouraging and exciting moonshot mission in life and also to have the opportunity 
to introduce you a little bit to what we do here at the Atlas Society. So. Absolutely. And let me just say in, in closing that since I know there were lots of people who had questions that I didn't get a chance to answer, I've just put my personal email address in the chat. I think I sent it to everybody. Um, so everybody who's here is totally welcome to email me anytime. And, um, you know, I'm happy to answer questions that we didn't get to. Wonderful. That's extremely generous and probably uh, the reason for your your uh, your your massive networking because you do never know. I, I want to thank everyone who joined us today also for taking the time out of your schedule and also um, Aubrey, how can they get more involved, learn more, uh, go to send the SENS Foundation website? SENS Foundation website is definitely the place to start. We're pretty proud of it. You know, it's got masses of information that's written for every kind of audience, from experts all the way through to complete novices. Of course, it's got lots of news about what we're doing and what other people are doing in the space. It's and of course, it's got a nice, big, friendly donate button. Wonderful. Uh, so that if, if that may be something that those listening, please share this video. Consider supporting Aubrey's work. Of course, if you are enjoying these seminars and you are enjoying the work of the Atlas Society, engaging young people with the ideas of reason, individualism, productivity, achievement, and liberty as the foundations for individual flourishing and a flourishing society please consider also supporting the atlas society we will see you next week for our current events webinar with our senior scholar richard salzman and our senior scholar stephen hicks thanks everyone and thank you aubrey thank you thanks for having me Hopefully see you in Malibu or in NorCal. Absolutely. Yeah, certainly. Thanks for having me again. Bye-bye.